What happened was Larry Fleischer had been shown, as Frank referred to, the books. And he was a very smart guy, but he was also a courageous guy. He looked at them and he realized that we had a very serious problem here for the league, for the continued success of the league. There were five teams that were, might not open the next season. And what he recognized as rational people would, but not necessarily those in the midst of this kind of a, of a um, uh, adversarial uh, negotiation, um, he realized that if the league fails, the players fail. They're, t they're too tied together. They are, you know, if the, if the league can't succeed, the players can't succeed, even though they have contracts that say they're worth, they're getting a lot of money, if nobody's there to pay them, it doesn't do them any good. So he was willing to take that step, and it was a courageous step. There had been no salary cap in any sport up till then, and he was um, party to a very innovative approach. Watch a movie. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Quick, quick, quick. Strawberry banana. Strawberry banana. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about aggregation. I'm oddly intrigued by neck tattoos. Yeah, we love China. We love no playing there. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. It's just hitting me right now. Shut up and listen. You think you're better than me? Hey! All right, we're back. This is Swish FM, Chris Wendelkin and Ben Craw. Ben, we are lucky enough to be joined today by a labor lawyer, someone with a ton of experience in the sports and entertainment business. He's currently the senior labor counsel for one of the unions I belong to, actually, the Screen Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA. He's a professor at the Benjamin Cardoza School of Law, teaching collective bargaining. He is also the author of the newly published book, The Cap, How Larry Fleischer and David Stern Built the Modern MBA. The book is basically mm. what I would describe as what, like a deep dive, sort of a behind the scenes look at how the NBA and the NBA Players Association brokered a deal and agreed upon the creation of the uh, NBA salary cap in 1983. It's an honor to have him with us, Josh Mendelson. Josh, thanks for taking a couple minutes. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Very excited to have you, Josh. Yeah, it's uh, it, we're, we're not usually a, uh, a guest featuring podcast. So this is a yeah, this is, this is a Always, always fun to have someone new uh, in the uh, in the mix. So well, your book yeah. is such a delight and like fascinating. I mean, truly fascinating uh, to read. So thanks so much for sharing it with us, and congratulations for starters. Um, yeah, it was just it was just such a pleasure to read. I'm curious, like, what? <laughs> well, what, I mean, give us a peek behind the curtain. What has the last couple of years of your life? been like like has it just been a constant process of researching and speaking to sources and 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 whatnot yeah i mean i kind of you know i have a full-time job so i kind of was doing it you know nights and weekends and stuff like that um yeah i mean i mean what ended up happening was i, I just started looking into it and it's really interesting and it just had never really been covered but in other sports it had been i, I didn't really understand why and then um you know i, I just started doing it and then my girlfriend at the time and now wife was like all right you either have to make this into something or not and so i did 
And then I was able to find all of the, um, a ton of internal NBA documents that are in spring at the Springfield college, all of Larry O'Brien's papers that nobody had ever looked at. Like they still were in the files as like that his secretary gave them when he died and no one ever looked at it. So, yeah. You mentioned that. Um, sorry to interrupt. You mentioned the, the, the LOB papers in the, uh, uh, I believe in the acknowledgements, uh, towards the end of the book. And I'm really like, that was like, wait, what? Like, this was a guy who not only was commissioner of the NBA, but was, you know, a, a major, major player in like democratic politics, you know, earlier on in his career. Like how, like when you say papers, were those like, like personal journals, like uh, meeting notes, like he just had like a diary, like sitting around that no one had ever like looked at? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that's all wild his, I think all of his like um, DNC stuff and all of that is in the in the Kennedy Presidential Library. Okay, I, and you know, I don't. I, I honestly, I can't even tell you how exactly I specifically found it. I think I found like, um, I think I found like Marvin Miller, like the guy who ran the baseball players. Like his stuff was at NYU, and then I was looking through some of that, and then I was like, wait, maybe this might exist. Maybe it's at the Kennedy Library, and then I found all this other stuff, and like, yeah, it's like literally like, it, I found. During like the settlement for the Oscar Robertson case, they have the deli orders of the owners. Like Mike Burke, the owner of <laughs> the Knicks, wanted like a pastrami sandwich. Yes, it was uh. a degree of specificity, and like no, no one had ever looked at it. Like even like like they were like handwritten. Like I found one, <clears throat> which is not in the book, which was. Well, my favorite thing I found, which we can talk about, is the Bob Lanier letter to the owners being like, you guys are a bunch of Neanderthals. That was my favorite <laughs> thing that I found. The second favorite thing I found was there's a memo from Irv Levin, who used to be the owner of the Celtics, to Larry O'Brien complaining that at NBA owners meetings, they would only be reimbursed for travel. And they should also be reimbursed for food and drinks, too. And how can they expect them to be involved in NBA meetings if they have to pay for their own food and drinks? Oh, so, my God. It, it was a ton of fun. All of the stuff is a ton of fun. Yeah, that's amazing. Fascinating. Um, I feel like you should you should write, like, a, like a sequel uh, that is just about the deli orders. Uh, I, 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 would dev- I, would, I would devour that, that content. Josh, tell us a little bit about, I guess, your, your background as a labor attorney and, like, how, what inspired you to take this path? Like, how, you know, you got to the point where you're like, hey, I should write a book about how and why the NBA salary cap was created. Sure. So I, I am, uh, I'm, I'm a labor lawyer. Um, and, um, I've always been interested in sports and how the labor of sports works. And I was reared on the MLBPA on baseball, on Marvin Miller. And I read Lords of the Realm and I read Marvin Miller's book, which are uh, fantastic books. And and John Pesser wrote a great book called the game that came out. I, I love those books. Um, and I was just always interested in it. And, you know, there were a bunch of things that happened and I, I just like, there were a bunch of things that happened. And I kind of was like, wait, I don't, I don't know the history of, of the NBPA. And I just didn't. And, and it was some combination of, you know, I started teaching a class on it. Um, through work, I actually had a meeting with the NBPA and I, I had to learn more about it. And uh, I just kind of started to dig into it. And it's really, really interesting. And it was totally forgotten. And so I just kind of started doing it and the more you dig into it the more it's interesting and it's just something that no one had ever done before like little tiny pieces of it were in different places um and some of the more recent stuff like i remember you know I, you know you guys are around my age i guess i like i remember like 
when Patrick Ewing was a part of the union, they locked them out. Even as the NBA plays its most important games of the season, negotiations are ongoing between the league and the Players Association for a new collective bargaining agreement. The current contract expires June 30th, and if a new agreement is not in place by then, a lockout or possibly a moratorium on league business could begin. And I remember the Derek Fisher one. I remember, you know, the, the, the David Stern lockout beard. I think that uh, we have been trying very hard from the NBA perspective. There were lots of things that we thought would make the system better. Uh, we wanted our league to be more competitive. We wanted it to be profitable. We wanted to better align pay with performance, uh, and we made a number of proposals in that regard. The first one was a hard cap, like the NFL. Players said no. So we said, all right, how about the flex cap of the NHL? The players said no, because both of those have the benefit of making a league much more competitive. Mm -hmm. And then the players said, how about a tax, and you can suggest it as punitives. And then we suggested a tax that had punitive elements in it, and they said no. So, uh, you know, we thought that fewer guaranteed contracts would make the league more competitive. The players said no. If my owners are watching, I think they were very soft and gave away a lot. Uh, and I said, okay, we understand. And in order to actually get to where we're going financially, we believe that there should be rollbacks in contracts. And the players on the contract said no. Uh, and so we have moved considerably uh, with respect to lightening our demands. And when the last session broke down, basically the players were walking away from a system that we project would give uh, you know, an average salary in year seven of uh, something in the neighborhood of $7.2 million per player. Mm -hmm. and. You know, that's their right, but uh, I think that the, any, any uh, characterizing as the owners as intransigent, if truth be told, the players' negotiators have moved very, very little. I didn't know any of the early stuff. And then when you yeah. read it, it's, it's, you know, these guys were awesome. And so the more I read about it, the more I liked it. More, I, you know, and I was, I was, my father is a professor and he's written books, so it's not like totally foreign. And I was like, mm -hmm. all right, this is what I want to write about. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, and you never. This is your, the first book you've ever written, correct? Yeah, I never written a thing. I mean, outside uh, of like you know, briefs or like right. other things, <laughs> I'd never written a thing before I wrote this. Crazy. Well, it's really wow. well written. I mean, let me uh, yeah say that. I mean, so, so you, you mentioned Patrick. Did you grow up in New York? Am I assuming that you grew up in New York? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious, like I. I guess you have a really unique perspective here working as a labor attorney. Like, how did your perspective change as a sports fan? You know, growing up as a kid, you just idolize the athletes. And then at a certain point, I imagine, you know, when you start working in the labor business, how did that fan perspective evolve for you when you became an attorney and, you know, you, you started becoming more aware of, like, the business behind the sport? I, I Well, I'm also, like, somewhat... I guess I'll, I'll admit it. I, I have biases as I'm sure everybody sure. else does. And, um, when I was in law school, I had the incredible privilege of working for the baseball players association, which I loved. And I just have always kind of, I, I never have sympathy for ownership. I kind of always have sympathy for players and I don't really, you know, um, and I think that, you know, and look, not everybody's right all the time that, you know, there's always, you know, there's, every, there's always two sides to things, but, um, 
you know, I, I think that I don't kind of, I don't really abide by the, you know, a player should take less or someone, you know, all of these things are play, you know, you guys these, have these greedy, some, these greedy players. No, I never, I never buy into that. Paid you know? to I never play have, a never, game. How can uh, it be so no, greedy? Never. Uh, just. <laughs> Oh, and, and I don't know. All, all that ESPN uh, commentary didn't didn't have an effect on you throughout the entire 1990s. No, I, I, no, I, I don't. I don't. I, I don't think that. Like, I don't think you know, commissioners are not you know unbiased arbiters. I don't think the union has an obligation to like. They don't. Have, they're not the caretakers of the sport, and the owners are a business. Like, no, like, you know, unions are fundamentally free market institutions, right? The idea of the free market is that there's full information and full mobility. A union negotiates a free market circumstance for employees because otherwise you don't know what your employer pays every person who works there. You don't know, and the union provides that. And so same thing in sports. Um, and, you know, so I, 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 I don't have the, you know, I, I don't know, but I, and I also don't, um, you know, I don't always think it's like the player's obligation, you know. I also don't expect leagues and sports to be, arbiters of morality and i'm not disappointed when they aren't yeah, yeah when i like i i read the the entire book which is awesome by the way um and i and i feel like a major theme of the book obviously it's about the history of the creation of, of the original salary cap so you focus it on you know the the 70s early 80s um i mean you get into the the history of you know, Oscar Robertson in the 60s and stuff and the sort of very beginnings of the of the labor movement in the NBA. Um, but then it's it's really focused around the, um, you know, the the initial, you know, collective bargaining agreement in, I guess, 83 is when it was actually signed. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I found obviously it's a story of of conflict between, you know, labor and management um, and these players versus the versus these owners and it is very much a um you know a a, a adversarial relationship um and one of the the sort of themes that i that i found running through the entire uh story is um i i don't know i I don't want to like you know give away too much of the book here but there's a couple quotes that i wanted to just uh pick out here um because it struck me like every single time something like this was said um so let's see the so basically you know as anyone who's an nba fan knows you know the 70s were a difficult time for the league the aba merger happens the league is kind of you know in, in rocky shape financially and then the early 80s and i remember as a kid i sort of remember like uh hearing the the sort of fable that like Oh, the NBA was in bad shape, and then Larry Bird and Magic Johnson came along and changed everything, and they were the reasons that the league, you know, turned around and became successful. Um, obviously, it's much more complicated than that. Um, but in the early '80s, when all of this stuff was happening, <clears throat> the kind of fundamental uh, like conflict, I guess, was the owners just not being like when you think of like the players. Players are, are sorry, I'm, I'm getting off on, on a rant, like, <laughs> right off the bat here. But players are, are hired to do a job, uh, to play basketball. And they are the best at that job in the entire world. The owners are also hired to do a job, which is to own and manage an NBA franchise. The uh, same cannot be said of NBA owners. <laughs> they are not always, uh, in many cases, the best uh, in the entire world at what they do. Um, and I found that the sort of, like, fundamental theme of this story was the owners not being 
good at what they do. And in response to that, deciding, oh, you know uh, who we should blame for this? The players. <laughs> um, and like, let's, like, let's sort of have them bear the burden of our own uh, mismanagement and, and, and failure and idiocy in many cases. Um, so if I can just like pick out a couple of quotes here on page 192, um, uh, Larry, Larry Fleischer, uh, who's the, um, you know, one of the sort of key subject stars of the book, he's the, the head of the, the players association. Um, and, um, so, uh, they're talking about how, you know, the, the financial dire straits of, of many of these teams, Fleischer's talking to David Stern, um, and said, uh, you know, Fleischer told Stern that if teams folded, quote, so be it. The players are not prepared to give up what they have gained to protect 50 jobs. Stern suggested the players, the players, <laughs> who, reminder, were hired to play basketball, not to manage their franchises. Stern suggested the players make a proposal that would save the NBA money. Fleischer responded, quote, get better owners with more money who market better. <laughs> Like, and it's really that's just that like simple, ha- right? Like, like it's- <laughs> hammered it home for me. And there's like many more uh, examples of this, like throughout the book. At one point, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, when talking about a player strike, um, says, um, uh, "You know, it won't do us uh, that much good to strike, but we have to protect ourselves." It seems that the owners feel we're responsible for the owners' misfortune of overpaying us or spending fortunes for dubious talent. Um, of course, uh, you know, we'd like to see all teams survive. They provide jobs for us, but we can't be responsible for mismanagement, um, which strikes me as fairly obvious. There's a good, like, we're not going to bail out Donald Sterling quote somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, like, again and again, it comes back to the players just being like, guys, like, this is not, our job is not to, like, negotiate a profitable, like, cape, like television contract. Like, we, we're the, we're, we're basketball players. Like, we can't be... Right. The ones who are marketing ourselves, <laughs> like that's like, your job. <laughs> we've spent our entire lives getting uh, incredible at basketball. Like that's all we ever thought about. That's all we ever did. Go to the gym, play yeah. basketball, practice really hard, become incredibly successful. You know, go to the best universities and colleges, and and then get drafted. Like we didn't go to business right. school. We're not here. <laughs> like that is your job. Um, but it, yeah, to Ben's yeah. point, uh, Josh, it does seem like a predominant theme in the book, just the, the blatant mismanagement of, of the owners. Yes. And I mean, that, that, that is certainly a big, a big part of it. Um, you had a bunch of, of very, very bad owners, but you also had some good owners, right? Like Jerry Buss was really smart. Jerry Buss ran his team, you know, I, I considered writing a whole bunch of stuff, but Jerry Buss was basically like an analytic front office. They made, mm. you know, like they, that existed, they were, you know, so... There's kind of, you know, there were a bunch of really bad owners, but then there were also good owners. And, and the problem, you know, <clears throat> I did a bad job of, of answering a previous question by going off on no, no, no. other pieces. But the other thing that I kind of wanted to convey is that these constructs that exist in sports did not come down from God, right? They're the result of people at the table bargaining who those people are and what those relationships are. Like part of what I tried to stress is that what they agree to in the NBA, right? And and you know I went into this being like the salary cap was shoved down the players' throats; they would never have agreed to it. Why would they have ever done it? You know, blah, 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 right? Which is you right. know, but there it is very clear that there were things that they wanted that they got out of it. That it was a trade. Yeah. Um, some of them have proven to be wise, and other parts have been eroded over time. You know that there was a trade, a logical, reasonable trade. 
that they thought was in the best interest of of um, of their membership, and was also right to Ben's point to reel in Ted Stepien and Donald <laughs> Sterling and make them spend so that you wouldn't have really like some of what's going on in baseball right now where you have teams that aren't spending, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that would never happened in baseball at that time because basketball it was like, Ben, you're right, right? It's certainly an adversarial relationship, right? This is not a cozy, you know, a union that's not advocating for its members or just kind of like in management's pocket. Like, no, like that's not what it is. But it was not the bitterly toxic circumstance that was going on in baseball um, at that time, which I frankly attribute to ownership. I don't attribute it to the union. The union wasn't doing, as far as I could tell, the union wasn't doing anything. It was it was owners who were unwilling to work with them. In the NBA, they were much more willing to, and I think that allowed them to get certain things that they wouldn't have been able to get in another circumstance. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, I, I do think that, that the... I kind of answered a question different than the question that you asked, but um, poor ownership was certainly a key part of it. And I think that if the owners had been better, I don't think the union would have ever agreed to this. Yeah. Right? Like if you didn't have a, a, a one, if you didn't have someone doing some of the crazy stuff that Stan or Donald was doing, it wouldn't have been as big of an issue. Um, and so I, I think that like they were so bad that it kind of, helped ownership achieve something that they wanted. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I would love to talk about some of the uh, things that ownership and Stern uh, brought to the table uh, in these negotiations, which I, I just found fascinating. But let's talk about Stern for just like a, a minute or two here. So I, I, I was thinking about this, you know, it's rare, I think, for uh, when you're a child, like when you're a sports fan, whatever, for kids to have any sort of like awareness of the the business people behind the entertainment products that they consume. You know, like I love the movie Space Jam as a kid. I didn't know anything about like the executives at Warner Brothers, one, because I didn't care about them, and two, because they weren't public-facing individuals. But sports leagues are obviously kind of different, right? You know, commissioners are sure. public figures, Right. They're they're more than just suits in Madison Avenue. And and as as a kid, you know, I never had too many thoughts. I never had too many thoughts about David Stern. Obviously, I know he screwed over the Knicks during that playoff series against the Heat when when the players came <laughs> off the bench. But other than that, he just seemed like a fun, kind of heelish guy, someone that we would boo at the NBA draft. We've had to explain to our international audience that the boo is an American sign of respect. (laughs) But it's interesting now in adulthood, you know, when you kind of examine these things with a bit more of a critical eye, um, it's interesting to learn and sort of examine and consider someone like David Stern, who is or was someone that was running a, or was helping to run a multi-billion dollar business. And obviously the league was in a very different place during the 80s. But some of the issues that Stern and the owners brought to the bargaining table with the Players Association seemed to me <laughs> completely out of touch and, and really, frankly, short-sighted. And I think, Josh, in the book, you do a really uh, great job of highlighting some of the, the priorities that Stern and the owners brought to the negotiating table with the Players Union, including um, reducing the roster sizes from 12 to 10 players, requiring the players to pay their own medical and pension plans, <laughs> uh, eliminating guaranteed contracts, eliminating no-trade clauses, eliminating incentive and severance payouts. The owners were asking players to uh, prohibit contract renegotiation. They wanted to prohibit players from owning a club, 
uh, which is unconscionable now. I mean, you just had LeBron James the other the other day buy a piece of the uh, Boston Red Sox. They wanted to allow teams to extend contracts by one year under the same terms if a player was injured or refused to play. Um, the owners wanted the league to be able to increase the playoff teams from 12 to 16. They uh, they they wanted teams to be uh, allowed to control the, the sneaker endorsements of players. And then the last one, which just seems bad for business, they, they wanted to require players to fly coach as opposed to first class. These are professional athletes. Their their body is their business. Why would you why would you uh, do something that would objectively like harm their bodies? and create an inferior product. So anyways, my question is, this is a very long-winded um, question here, but like, were these really good faith suggestions for you know, saving the business and being fiscally responsible? Or was this, as you, you know, sort of allude to in the book, was this meant to actually be an attack on unionization? Was this, were these proposals, these ideas, I mean, they were so asinine, so draconian, you know, were they trying to scare the players and the union into making concessions that they didn't actually need to? No, look, it's, it's a fair question. And yes, I mean, those were those were ridiculous. And I go, you know, um, <clears throat> but that came. So the one thing that I will say, right. And and I, I, I do think it's interesting the way you describe how executives of other businesses rel- relative to David Stern, because I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, <laughs> um, but uh, but, but these negotiations, the thing that's, that's interesting about these negotiations is that both sides are their pros, right? This is not a universe in which someone doesn't know what they're doing or, you know, like Larry Fleischer had been doing this for 25 years at this point. He's negotiated every deal that exists. David Stern has a tremendous amount of experience, right? So it isn't as if these guys had no idea what they were doing. Um, why do I think the NBA proposed that? Well, <clears throat> um, I think part of it is legally strategic, which I talk about a bit in the book and may or may not be interesting to people. I tried to do this in the book as much as possible without getting too bogged down into like, you know, labor law and right. minutia, which is of interest to no one. Uh, well, it might be, but it isn't. Um, but the idea being that like this was strategic, right? So um, <clears throat> the NBPA had basically won the initial legal battle that the NBA could not force this on them. And so Stern is trying to throw out a whole bunch of things that he can then, if it gets down to it later on, shove down their throats legally as being, you know, uh, without getting into it specifically. But that's so I think what they're trying to do is trying to throw a whole bunch of stuff out there. And then it seemed like they immediately leaked it <laughs> so that everything would be public as to what was going on. Wouldn't be the first um, time and then they got angry when. Right. Uh, well, I mean, you can you can see. I mean, you know, one of the things that's funny is when you go through Larry O'Brien's papers, they have all the press releases from this time period. So they have these like nine nine page press releases about how the union is terrible and whatever it is. <laughs> but but in this instance, in this instance, and, and look, the, the union engaged in tactics too. Like it sure. wasn't as if like this was kind of one sided. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's what makes it interesting um, because the union was also offensive and the union was also public. Um, but I think that what, what the NBA was trying to do is they were trying to put forward – they were trying to see what they could get away with and see what they could do, and this was a tactic that they were going to try. Um, you know, Because they, they, what happened was after they did this, 
publicly, like Red Auerbach was like, oh, I think it was Jack Ramsey was like, what am I going to do with 10 players? What happens if someone's injured? Like, how yeah. are we going to do this? And like, I, I, like Red Auerbach was like, why are we even bothering with this? Right? Like, mm-hmm. And then they, they found them all because they were mad that they were not coming out in favor of these ridiculous proposals, right? So like, you know, I, I think that like, you know, everyone likes to think that everyone in these circumstances, and I don't, I don't know if you guys have ever been through, you know, bargaining or anything like that like it's not always clean it's not always perfect these things don't always come down from you know and so i think that like the nba was going through a bargaining process they tried this they tried other things some of it worked some of it didn't um you know i mean i I talk about it later with like they would have like owners who would like pull players aside and basically threaten them like you know they were trying to there was things that they wanted to get so that's what they were trying to do yeah definitely like some insane tactics and it also just makes you like realize another thing that never struck me as a kid but just like how big a role the media plays um and you know throughout the, the the book you have you know different instances where there's like oh you know media blackouts uh at one period they're you know the owners are prohibited from talking to the media and they're fined if they do so but then at another point in the negotiations they're all encouraged to talk to the media so it all just totally depends on like what the tactics are at that moment like what their strategies are um and yeah i just remember so much as a kid like during the 99 lockout like it it seemed to me i don't know like or or maybe i'm i'm also sort of remembering the, the 94 baseball strike but it seemed like all of the blame was always yeah. just placed in the players because it was like that was the sort of e- easy like y- you know and obviously there was like lots of um uh you know sort of implicit and and sometimes more explicit racism involved um and uh, just all these issues, but I, it was always like the greedy players, like, oh, how could they, right. um, y- you know, not want to play this game that they claim they love so much, blah, 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 blah. And like, maybe it's just because they had more footage of players to show on TV than they had of like these like shadowy owners. Um, but it was like, there was never, I don't remember a fucking single like sports center segment where it was talking about some terrible owner and all of his failures and mismanagement. It was always just like, oh boy, the players are demanding more. it's crazy to, to like think about how that without like almost like subconsciously how that sort of like colored my perspective as a, as a young, you know, sports fan without having the knowledge or, or context, um, or experience to, to think like, Oh no, wait, like There's I, two sides to like, story. the players are not the bad guys here. Like the, yeah. Um, the other thing just to keep in mind is pretty much in almost every instance. And I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure basically since around the mid 1970s, Almost every sports negotiation for the players has been defensive, right? Mm. So after, after you know, baseball players win free agency through arbitration in the mid-1970s, the owners locked them out, right? They won unfettered free agency. That was what the Messersmith-McNally case decided, right? And everything since then has been trying to hack away at that, right? Mm. Even basketball, the lockouts, you know, were about, like, the salary cap that, that they agreed to in 1983 
is incredibly different than what it is now. Um, and those lockouts are really about taking the system and making it more restrictive, you know? Um, so in, in those instances where we've had these um, labor battles, in most instances for the players, it's been defensive, not offensive. Well, another thing I was thinking of is just the idea, I mean, I don't, yeah, I think everyone should, should read the book. And so we won't cover like a lot of the nitty gritty of, of, of the story here, but I, um, I would love to just kind of pick your brain about like more bigger picture things. Like for me, the thing, another thing that you didn't really think about, and I don't know why I'm framing this all as like my childhood brain, uh, consuming sports, but like, I never sort of realized this, like the concept of like, like the NBA draft was like, oh, oh yeah, like that's the NBA draft. Like that's how players enter sports leagues. They are drafted to the team that drafts them and then they play for that team. Like that's how it works. Or like the NBA salary cap. It's like, oh, well, yeah, sure. That's like, it, like I think as when you first sort of start watching sports, you sort of assume these things as like laws of nature. Um, uh, like that's just the way it works in, in sports. And like there's not really another way that it could work. Um so sort of realizing, like reading the story, like just made me think more about the fact that like, yeah, like the NBA draft is not a, like a, this immutable like thing that exists. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be that way or like free agency or, uh, or a salary cap even like doesn't have to exist. Like there's no reason any, like, so I guess sort of a very broad and vague question for you, uh, Josh is like, can you envision like basically the the trade-off that the players and the owners made in 1983 the, the deal they came to was a salary cap meaning a limit on the amount of money a player could be paid in exchange for a share of revenue that was like kind of the grand bargain um uh so that like you know both sides sort of lost something that they wanted but got something that they wanted can you envision like a sort of alternate reality where like a salary cap doesn't exist. Um, and LeBron James is paid, for example, like what he's actually worth, which is probably like 10 times the amount that he currently makes. <laughs> um, or like uh, basically just kind of, I don't know, spitball a little bit. And, and um, like what, what would the NBA look like? Like would it, would teams have to fold in smaller markets if there were no salary cap, basically stuff like that? I mean, honestly, no, I don't think so. Right. Yeah. I, I, you, I, I just don't. I, I mean, may, maybe in 1979, but certainly not in 2021. Yeah. It feels you know? like a fundamentally it's a different league. Franchise to fold. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. But I mean, like there's, there hasn't been a professional sport fold in, in, in what, since the ABA 50 years. Yeah. Ago? Since the, I was going to say since the ABA. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where, like, it's not as if, um, and 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 you know, if a team folds, like, okay, you know, like, I, I'm, like I'm not saying that, but I don't yeah. you know, like, I don't think that, like, I think that immediately everyone's like, well, if anybody, you know, every every team is, you know, run by really really smart people. They have really smart front offices. You know, we talked about Ted Steppi and hiring his, you know, he hired the the guy who ran his semi-pro softball team to be his GM. Like, that's not really who, like, Daryl Morey or Sam Presti or, like, that's not who they are. Like, these are really mm. smart guys, and they have legions of really smart guys. Yeah. And women and, and you know, sorry, the people coming up, uh, you know, in, in, in these front offices. And so it would seem to me as if, why should, like... What do they think? Like, what do they think is gonna? What's what's gonna? These guys are, are such brilliant business people, but they're gonna spend themselves. Like, I just don't believe it. So let's see what happens, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's like you know. 
because uh, I've, I've actually gotten that question a lot, which is like, well, what would happen if we didn't have a salary cap? It'd be fine. Yeah. What yeah. would happen if we didn't have a draft? There wasn't a draft in baseball until like 1967, I think. Like, wow. Yeah, there was no draft. Like, the one, the, the, the thing, because I, I had the same thought you did, to be honest with you. I had just taken the same stuff that all these things in basketball, like, you know, like the Danny Manning draft was under suit and almost didn't happen. Like, like really? You know, they had really to, like, yeah, yeah. There's like, there's all this, <clears throat> which I didn't. I, you know, I didn't go into I didn't go into it a ton, but like you know, I talked about when like the union decertified and all that stuff in 1988, and mm. part of it was like Gary Bettman was like giving quotes, being like, "No, no, there's going to be a draft, guys. There's going to be a draft." Like there was really fear that like there was going to be a lawsuit that would end the NBA draft because the NBA draft is anti-competitive. Yeah, like, yeah. These are monopolies. I got to tell you, Josh. Like in the in, in the middle of reading your book, I texted Ben a lot. Like we were corresponding a lot and I was just like, yeah, I'm just rethinking the whole concept of like, you know, the NBA draft, but like the, the, the principle of like ownership, like why should anyone work for anyone that they don't want to, you know, especially if someone could theoretically offer them a better situation, you know? Um, and it is sort of archaic and like not good. And, it is something that I, your book made me think about this a lot. And I think it's a real credit to you and the book that I started, uh, frankly, looking myself in the mirror a lot as a sports fan and being like, why have I internalized um, a lot of like broken psychology that frankly has been handed to me from rich, powerful people, ownership groups and said, well, this is the way it is. This is the way it's always been done, and this is the way it should be done. And and I'm kind of like, you know, in reading your book, I was like, maybe there are better ways to do this. Maybe we shouldn't have an NBA draft. Maybe Zion Williamson, who's the most talented, you know, player, or LeBron James, or Anthony Davis, you know, the most talented young players entering the league, they possess the power. They possess the potential. They are the golden goose. Why are we, why should they just have to be like, yeah, I guess I'm going to play for the New Orleans Pelicans because a bunch of ping pong balls went that way. You know, is there a universe wherein, I don't know, 20, 50 years from now where it's just a free market open system where there is no draft and it's just a bidding war. And, you know, you know, the, if it's James Dolan or Joseph Tsai or, or, or Steve Ballmer, whoever it is, Mark Cuban, the highest bidder will just pay for the top prospect. Is that, is that something that could potentially exist? I don't know. Well, potentially, absolutely. Right. Like, well, why, why not? Why couldn't it? Um, you know, the, the one thing that like, <clears throat> You know, and, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you guys say that because part of that was kind of the goal, which is that, like, I kind of feel like one of the things is that I feel like everyone just kind of assumes that, like, you know, these things always were. And, like, it's as if, like, well, it's a transaction that leads to blah, blah, blah. Like, that's just what happened. It's what they agreed to do at the time. You know, like, even right. you know, I wrote about it in the book, like, even in, when they're negotiating, the players, you know, the, the players offered a hard cap to ownership on several occasions and they turned it down. Right. Yeah. Like everyone thinks that these, they have these grand visions. It's not really how it is. They're just people in a room. Um, and so, you know, could there be something in the future where, they do? yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how the labor environment shifts and, and what happens and who, what the priorities are of players and, you know, the, the and, and, and ownership. Right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, just like I, I wrote about, and and I don't, I don't, you know, 
I, I wrote about it a bit like, <clears throat> you know, who has sway in these various rooms matters, right? right. Like the owner of the Spurs, Angelo Drosos, right? Oh, I want to talk about that, that guy. guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Holy like, shit. That guy's one of yeah. my favorite characters. That guy. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. That guy, exactly. Um, uh, Is he like the Tillman he... Fertitta of the 1980s, would you say? <laughs> Is that a, a reasonable comp? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, but but basically, like you know, in 1980, he was like, "No, oh, we're gonna we're gonna have a strike. We're gonna have a strike, and we're gonna do it." And Adam Silver's father and and basically came in. And we're like, "We're not gonna do that. Right? We're gonna make a deal. We're gonna push a deal, and that's what happened." If they have a different set of owners who are pushing for X or pushing for Y, it might be different. If you have a different group of players, if you have different leadership of the union, right? What if you have somebody who gets, you know, and and um. I love Michelle Roberts. Michelle Roberts is amazing. I mean, you know, she's fantastic. You know, what happens if you have someone who, you know, gets the job by saying we're going to do X or we're going to do Y or they, you know, however it is, how these things develop over time is going to be dependent, like, on, on what's in these negotiations and, and what, what they what they bargain for. Like, it, it, you know. Well, you're much smarter than Ben and I are, and you have experience with actual labor negotiations. So you help us answer those questions. Like, what would be the incentive uh, you know, in 1983, the incentive for the players to work with ownership was like, hey, let's make the league a prosperous place where we can all win. What would be the, you know, what would be the incentive for ownership at this point to, you know, do away with a salary cap or do away with a draft? What would be what would be the incentive there that ownership could could ever agree to that kind of a thing? Well, there, there without being a mind reader. <laughs> No, no, I mean, look, there's a few pieces, right? Right now, right, in the NBA, there's a limit on how much you can pay someone, how many years you can sign them, what, you know, uh, and, and how much you're, al- what you're allowed to do, right? Wouldn't you think that if you were um, an owner uh, or, or whatever it is, who, you know, and you, you have, you know, Shea Gilgis-Alexander in Oklahoma City and you like him there and you want to re-sign him. You know what? I don't want to re-sign him for four years. I think we can get him for seven years. Maybe if early on we do X. Like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was able to program two nights at the Forum every year as part of his deal with the Lakers. Like, don't you think that if, like, you could go to, you know, uh, Kawhi Leonard and say, hey, you know what? You're going to get you're gonna get two nights at the Staples Center a year. Anything you like, want. <laughs> Right, like the only wait, wait, when you say program, you mean yes. like he was able to just like have a party yeah, there? Concerts at the forum. Two <laughs> oh, shit. See, that's awesome. Wait, so he that would throw so awesome. he would throw was, like in his contract. He would throw his own yes. concerts. Yes. <laughs> that's so that awesome. was part of his deal. That was like uh, what the Lakers gave him. Like the Lakers gave Magic Johnson a twenty five year contract yeah. with the expectation that they would pay him long after right. he was still playing. Yeah. I, I was think, gonna say in terms of like like Jerry Buss for all of his like I don't know, human and moral faults, like that was one of the most brilliant, th- like to have yeah. the foresight to be like, oh, I'll pay him tw- one million. It was one million a year for twenty five years. Yeah, and he's like, within five years, that's going to be like an incredibly good contract. And you have that quote <laughs> and, from him in the book where right. you're like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't even matter. Like by year eighteen, he'll be coaching. By year twenty, he'll be in the front office. It'll pay for itself. Yeah. And my God, was he right? Yeah, yeah. right, right. And so like. <laughs> You know, it's something we're like, okay, well, like right now we have really, really smart people looking for loopholes in a flawed system, right? Mm. So, I mean, like 
You really think that, like, they couldn't come up with really smart ways to build a team by saying, like, all right, well, we're going to do X or we're going to do Y. Like, why does it have to be that the smart team is the one who signs a second-round pick to four years at the minimum with two team options? Like, why is that the embodiment of brilliance to us as basketball fans? Why can't it be, like, we're going to let – we want them to do X or Y or, oh, my God, like, we're going to do X thing that's really interesting and creative or, like, wouldn't that just be more fun and more interesting than, like, you know – KJ McDaniel signed a one-year deal because he didn't want to sign Sam Hankey's bad four-year, like mm. you know, second-round pick deal. Like, yeah, that's so, that's a, a point that Chris had made to me in the midst of reading. He texted me one night, and he was like, "It just occurred to me that like all of the most brilliant GMs, you know, the Daryl Morey's and the Sam Hankey's are all, they're always the ones who are like basically like the, the ones that we celebrate and and lionize the most are are usually the ones who are like finding the most creative ways, basically, to not to like not play." pay players what they're worth like like yes. the, the 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 you know the, the ones that we all like you know hold up as as these heroes as as like nerdy sports fans are the ones that like find the loopholes basically to exploit the players the most <laughs> uh which yeah it's kind sometimes of- yes and sometimes no like i mean the truth of the matter is is like you know like like sam hinky was like i'm gonna get to the minimum the last day that he can like don't worry, like we'll still go out and sign people right he's not brian anderson for a lot of money like yeah I mean, sure. like Definitely. you know like th- there's there's two sides to it like i think that like i don't think that you can be a successful gm in the nba and first of all teams have to spend 85 percent, whatever the number is now of the cap anyway so right. like you know but to some degree yes i hear what you're saying yeah 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 i just think like, it's like I, I was thinking about this it seems maybe with like the advent of uh fantasy sports which has become this huge business you know like fans have uh, fans have sort of like come to love the front office GMs as much as like the players on the field. And I was, I was giving Ben this example the other day about like the Chicago Cubs and how like Theo Epstein was this like hero to these people, you know, to this fan base. And, and, you know, he's so savvy and shrewd and it's like, that's true, and he did help the team win a World Series, and, you know, I, I understand that, but he was also, like, a guy that was, um, you know, keeping Chris Bryant in the minor leagues, like, delaying his free agency, and it does sort of depress the hell out of me sometimes that, like, there is a culture of uh, with sports fans where we sort of, like Ben said, like, lionize the business operators behind the teams when their job is, frankly, sometimes to, like, maximize productivity at minimum cost. And I understand that is like the operating principle of basically all businesses, right? Like maximize, maximize uh, profits and returns for as little money as possible. But that does seem like a psychology that is handed down to us from businesses, right? And it's like Tom Ricketts who owns the Chicago Cubs is worth $3 billion. And the, the, the team really needed Chris Bryant on the field and they delayed it, right? Because they yeah. they wanted to suppress his ability to become a free agent eventually. Um, and so, I don't know. It, it is interesting to me that as sports fans, we have been sort of warped into sort of rooting for corporate interests before team interests. And really before team interests, the interests of the talent, of the entertainers that we actually love. You know, like I, I became a basketball fan because I loved Patrick Ewing, not because James Dolan was shrewd <laughs> with cable vision or something. So, no, look, I think uh, the, the one other thing that I will say is that the, the, there's two pieces, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you on the, the, the Chris Bryant piece. And I also agree that, thank God, they got that seventh year of team control 
and didn't try to win six years ago because now everyone's gone and it's different and you're still paying them whatever. I mean, I mean he won. Know, he I, won the I, MVP I, making six hundred thousand dollars a year. And I, I grant, granted, I'll say like the system of baseball is completely fucked, and and that's a bigger issue, and that's not Theo Epstein's fault, you know, certainly not. But um, it does sort of depress me that sometimes that we're like, you know, celebrating shrewd well, guys. The one thing that I will say, right, <clears throat> and I, I, I agree with much of what you said. Um, I, part of what I liked about this book, right, is that is that it. It was right, and I think it still is, and we'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But Larry Fleischer was basically Daryl Morey or Sam Presti or Sean Marks, yep. right? Mm-hmm. He came up with every really clever, smart loophole. It was happening on the player side, like whether that's you know okay. And, and I remember, like, I asked um, <clears throat> one of the lawyers who worked very closely with Fleischer. I was just like, would like. Okay, like there was a time period in the NBA where there was compensation, where like if you were a, a free agent, you signed with another team, like the commissioner was allowed to determine what would what the team would get back, right? Mm-hmm. And so like that happened, like like um, <clears throat> a guy named Marvin Webster went to Seattle and there was this whole thing. And I was like, were the players like upset that it was unclear who was going to go where or what was going to happen? He's like, no, they were happy someone was fighting for them, right? Um, but like <clears throat> Larry Fleischer was incredibly creative. And really smart and like really innovative in a lot of ways. And <clears throat> I think that it depends on and, and, and because he was the, the head of the union and also an agent, right? He was his own intellectual footprint in the marketplace. Right? So like the union and the marketplace were aligned, right? In baseball in through the eighties, right? And I don't know how much you guys are baseball fans, I know them, but um, Dick Moss was the general counsel for the baseball players association. He then Marvin Miller and became the biggest agent in baseball, right? And he was fantastic at it. When the owners colluded, right? You know about collusion yep, in baseball in the yep, 80s? Yep, yep. Do, do you know the Andre Dawson story? No, remind me that. So the Andre Dawson story is probably the most crucial moment because it's the second wave. You have the first wave of gaining free agency and then you have the second wave of maintaining it. And so Andre Dawson, the owners are colluding. Andre Dawson is, is in Montreal, I think. Someone correct me, right? And he's playing on turf. He's going to hurt his knees. And he's like, I want to go to Chicago. I just want to play in Chicago. But the owners were colluding. They wouldn't sign him. Dick Moss, who was his agent, was the former general counsel of the Players Union, goes to the Cubs and he says, we're going to file an arbitration and we're going to win. And you're going to pay him everything. So here's a blank contract. We'll see you in the arbitration. Right? And they did. And they won. But that was because the union had the intellectual footprint right. in the marketplace. Mm. Right now, right, if you look at basketball, <clears throat> and baseball's a little bit different, but if you look at basketball, right, you have um, Rob Polinka in L.A. You have Bob Myers in Oakland. You have Leon Rose in New York. You also have Justin Zanuck in Utah. You have Joe Branch in Minneapolis. You have all of these either running the front office or second in the front office who are agents, who are player advocates, and they are going and running franchises, right? And that's why I, I don't, you know, baseball, right? Who are the guys who are running the front offices, right? They come from Tampa. They come yep. from, you know, it's just a different, it depends on what the intellectual footprint is in the marketplace yep. and what we deem to be smart. Right. And so, like, you know, no one's mad, you know, <clears throat> no one's mad if, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, you know, say Julius Randle, but Julius Randle's not a good example. But, like, you know, whatever it is, you know, if, 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 if when Bob Myers signs D'Angelo Russell, no one's like, oh, my God, what a waste. Like, you know, like, it just, there's just a different view yes. of... And there's a different intellectual footprint as to what's smart in the sport. Yeah, there's a different uh, idea of what value is, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's really important. 
so I went long winded there, but yeah. no, no, that's great. Um, we don't want to take up too much of your ch- time, Josh. But so we'll we'll wrap it up with like last couple questions here. But I w- I was curious, like thinking big picture, if Larry Fleischer was around today, and I know this is like impossible for you to really answer, but if he was around today, and you and you talk about him as like a Sam Presti or a da- a, a Daryl Morey, basically advocating on behalf of the players, what would he be? What would he be advocating for? today on behalf of the NBA Players Union? What would he be saying, you know what, this isn't fair or, or this isn't good about today's game? What would he be working on, in your opinion? Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, right? So the, here's the thing, right? Because the NBA is also really smart, and they're good. And um, I, don't know, like, I don't know if the viewpoint is the current system is one that they can live with. You know, it, it, depends. it depends on really what, what the membership wants. You know, there's an argument to be made that, like, okay, we want, you know, they uh, right now they make, you know, 49 to 50% some version of that. The first one is 53, got a high as 57 or 58. There used to be more freedom and flexibility. That might be something to fight for. Um, you know, the agreement that exists now probably wouldn't be identifiable because there's a maximum salary and a rookie wage scale and a luxury tax. And, a, you know, all those limitations didn't exist then. Right. So, I don't know, um, but he was also practical, right? Like, you know, if if players are okay with the system as it exists, you know, they don't need to go on strike for, like, my benefit so I feel better, so that I feel like the system is more just. Sure. If they're okay with their workplace, I don't know that it's like, you know, just because it might be inefficient or something that we don't prefer, I don't know that that necessarily is a reason to, like, have a work stoppage. Right. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Satisfying, but. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I also wonder, I also wonder, you know, sometimes I think like all people at all jobs just accept status quo. They're like, well, this is how it is. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is good enough. So I'm not going to complain and I'm not going to, you know, make a big stink out of it. But I wonder if, you know, the players had an opportunity to have things a different way if they would say, hey, you know, maybe there's a different way to do this, whether it's the draft, whether it's minimum salary, whether it's, you know, ab- abolishing the salary cap or whatever it is. But, yeah, I guess it's impossible I mean, I to could, answer. I could foresee a universe, right? Because the thing is, 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 here's the thing. NBA is, right, an unlawful monopoly. It is protected by virtue of the fact of a collective bargaining agreement, right? And that is really the backstop of all of this. And if that broke down, right, there could be an antitrust lawsuit that the NBA is an awful monopoly. That's what the Oscar Robertson case was, right? Mm-hmm. And so that universe could exist. I don't know when that would happen. I don't think either side, I don't think either side would let that happen. But I, I don't know. Just in, in terms of like you know future potential like extreme scenarios, uh, Kyrie Irving, who is like a you know a favorite kind of subject of ours, um, you know back before the season started, um, or I guess you know sort of restarted. Uh, you know, suggested the 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 notion of like a, a basically a league run by players. Like, I mean, and it, again, everyone's like, "Oh, crazy Kyrie!" Like, he just says the wildest shit. But it, like, again, it was like one of those things that made me think, like, "Oh, wait, like, are owners necessary? Like, what do they actually do? Like, could I mean, obviously, you need the infrastructure and the you know sort of like staff and support and all the you know t- uh, logistical stuff that goes into you know staging and broadcasting an NBA game but like the idea of like players running their own teams or like their own league like is that can you like foresee that possibility at some point 
look, here's the thing, right? Shouldn't there be competition, right? Like, I mean, the big three has honestly done really well, better than I ever thought it was, you know, like I wouldn't, you know, so, you know, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm a labor lawyer. I'm in no circumstance to know what the economics is of building a, a competitor. But in the 1960s and 1970s, there was the AFL, there was the ABA, there was the World Hockey League, there was the mm-hmm. USFL, right? Why couldn't there be a competitor to the NBA? Um, why couldn't there be a team that's like, you know what? I'm going to, I have a billionaire, especially with the concentration of wealth as we have it right now. Why wouldn't someone say, you know what? Sure, LeBron, I'll pay you $60 million for next year. A one-year yeah, yeah. contract, right? Isn't that what they do in soccer? Isn't that what MLS did to get people to come over? So, I don't know. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. All right, Josh, before we let you go, tell our audience where they can find you and your work online so they can purchase your book. So, it's called The Cap, How Larry Fleischer and David Stern Built the Modern MBA. It's on Amazon, Google Books, Barnes & Noble, um, IndieBound.com. Where else can they get it? Uh, Nebraska Press? Yeah, it's from Nebraska Press, but it's pretty much available anywhere. All the places you would buy a book on the internet. Anywhere you would buy a book, yeah. Yeah. Um, Also, importantly, oh, your book has an awesome website. If people are curious, they want to know more about Josh and the book, you can visit thecapbook.com. And Josh, where can folks find you online? Are you on Twitter or Instagram or any of that stuff? My, my, my Twitter name is Mendy Leaks, but I'm, not, I'm really kind of a bad tweeter, so Great. I probably should never. <laughs> it's just like us, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to ask one last thing out of just sheer curiosity. Um, listeners of our podcast will know that we've recently become a little bit obsessed with uh, professional wrestling and the labor situation uh, in that the organization i guess you would call it is just one of the most insane and darkly de- like fast intriguing things are, are do you have any uh ex- if it's a no just we can cut this off of the end of the show but do are you like do you have any awareness or like uh involvement in like what the fuck is going on labor wise in that i i know, like the difficulty in a sport like that and i know nothing yeah. Um, the difficulty in a sport like that is that it's always harder, especially from a labor perspective, when you have like an individual. Part of the benefit of unionization in team sports is that there's kind of there's more more people um, working together. Um, mm. Individual sports have always been much much more difficult um, to unionize because they tend to it just tends to be more solitary and it's just a little bit more difficult. Yeah, but I know nothing about I know nothing about wrestling. I think it has something to do with like independent contractor stuff. Like <laughs> yeah, it's it's very dark and fucked up. But uh, if you're ever curious to uh, you know st- start a new hobby, <laughs> <laughs> they could they could pro- they could probably use your help over there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, taking a couple of minutes to talk. Um, yeah, this was awesome, Josh. We thank loved you. reading this the book. Really yeah, man, thank you. I really appreciate it. Again, the book is called The Cap: How Larry Fleischer and David Stern Built the Modern MBA. It's available to purchase wherever you can, you know, find books online. And uh, we'll talk to you real soon, Josh. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Thanks so much, man. Bye. Pleasure. You've been listening to Switch FM. Switch FM.